It's Wednesday, February 22nd. One man was in Poland, one in Russia, with Ukraine caught in the middle. We start here. President Biden issues a call to the world to stand by Ukraine. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report, Kyiv stands strong. But Vladimir Putin gave a speech of his own. Are we about to embark on a new arms race? The Supreme Court seemed ready to go full geek squad until they didn't. They may have bitten off a bit more than they can chew. Could the signal a major victory for tech companies and call it infrastructure bleak? They fight safety regulations tooth and nail. That's got to change. The growing argument over train regulations in this country and what lawmakers might actually do about it. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. When President Biden traveled to Kiev this week under the cover of darkness to address the war-torn nation of Ukraine, it wasn't just a signal to the people there. It was a signal to the broader region. Well, yesterday, safely out of Ukraine, right across the border in Poland, Biden made that signal even clearer. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. (laughs) Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. In a fiery speech in Warsaw, President Biden declared that while the war in Ukraine would go on, the most fundamental battle had already been decided. The battle for Ukrainian hearts and minds, he said, is over. And yet Biden wasn't the only leader giving a closely watched speech yesterday. I'm giving this state address in a very difficult context and a very difficult time for our country. In Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave a lengthy address, and there were consequential announcements there. Let's start today with ABC's foreign correspondent Patrick Rievel, who's in Ukraine right now. Patrick, can we start with Biden? I mean, what stuck out to you about his address in Poland? Yeah, Brad, I think the first thing that stuck out to me was Biden saying that Ukraine will never be a victory for Vladimir Putin and saying that Basically, a year ago, in that very dark day when the invasion began, you know, this was a huge challenge, not only for Ukraine, but for the whole world. Europe was being tested. America was being tested. NATO was being tested. All democracies are being tested. And the questions we faced were as simple as they were profound. Would we respond or would we look the other way? Would we be strong or would we be weak? and that Ukraine still stands, that Kyiv still stands, and that democracy still stands. And I think the second thing that really stuck out to me was him saying that there are dark days ahead still, that, you know, it's a sort of cheesy line, but freedom isn't free. The defense of freedom is not the work of a day or of a year. It's always difficult. It's always important. And what he means by that is that, yes, Ukraine has managed to fight off the Russians, and truly has fought them off. But the war obviously is still grinding on and is actually the bloodiest it's ever been. And Vladimir Putin is as determined as ever to try and clinch some kind of victory from it. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. And so Biden's message was really stealing the American people and also the people of Europe that they need to stay the course, they need to keep backing Ukraine, and that this is going to be a long war and that this is not going to be easy. 
Well, that sounds like one of the answers to my next question, which is why? Why did Biden feel the need to not just speak out in Kiev, but then go to Poland and make this kind of evening speech that would be seen by so much of the world? Like what, what was the message he's really trying to convey elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people seeing it saw obvious parallels to a sort of Cold War moment, really, sort of Ronald Reagan or Kennedy in Berlin standing there and, and throwing out this challenge to Moscow. He thought autocrats like himself were tough and leaders of democracy were soft. And then he met the iron will of America and the nations everywhere that refused to accept the world governed by fear and force. This is the three worlds and you, you will not intimidate us. But I think ultimately, most of all as well, he's trying to rally the American people behind um, supporting Ukraine because we're seeing mm. a slight flagging in the US. A poll by ABC and the Washington Post showed that the number of Americans who feel that the US is doing too much has slightly grown. It's grown from 14% to around 30% now of the American public think that the US is doing too much. And that's because I think in, in their eyes, it's becoming more difficult to see this as a, an existential fight. And it's becoming more about land in eastern Ukraine. And I think Biden is trying to remind people of what the stakes of this war actually are. Over the past year, Democrats and Republicans in our United States Congress have come together to stand for freedom. That's who Americans are, and that's what Americans do. That this is a standoff between um, a vision of, of the world, essentially, whether you can have your sovereign independent country and the right to be a democracy that chooses its own path, or whether you give in to autocracy and the vision of the world as Vladimir Putin sees it. Well, if he's trying to outline the stakes, I mean, there are also stakes, there are also consequences to engaging yourself with Russia like this, right? And at the same time, on the same day, Vladimir Putin was giving an address in Russia in which he's announcing, like, Russia's no longer going to be participating in the START Treaty, the nuclear treaty. What, what, what did you take away from that kind of split screen with Putin? Yeah, we obviously were watching Vladimir Putin's speech very closely. It's his equivalent of the State of the Union um, as we watched it, it was very much vintage Putin. It was almost like listening to an old record, really, where he blamed the West for the war, that, you know, they are surrounded by a hostile world, that they need to rely totally on themselves, that there are Nazis next door in Ukraine. And I want to repeat this. They started the war, and we used our force in order to stop it. The, the only news suddenly comes at the end, and actually something that's a very big deal. He announced that Russia is suspending its participation in the New START Treaty, which is uh, the, the last remaining major nuclear arms control deal between Russia and America. The more long-range Western weaponry Ukraine is supplied with, the further we will have to push the danger from our borders. He said he wasn't actually fully leaving the deal for now, um, but obviously this is him ripping up a a key agreement that limits, uh, in theory, a nuclear arms race between the US and Russia. In many ways, it kind of also reflects his powerlessness at the moment to really shape things as he wants to shape the conflict in Ukraine. Because obviously what he would like to be able to do is decisively settle the conflict there and intimidate the US and its allies into stop backing Ukraine. But all he's got is to tear up this arms agreement that was already in quite serious trouble because it relies on um, a good deal of cooperation between Russia and the US and that already wasn't happening very much because relations have been in the deep freeze for so long. But yeah, of course it does matter. Um, it, 
it it really is another you know turn in this spiral of descent into a more dangerous world really I see, which makes you think perhaps more more sort of political than anything considering it's not like Russia wants nuclear war with the US and yet it shows this deteriorating relationship in, in this kind of Cold War 2.0 that Biden's trying to convince the rest of the world is real and needs to be won. Uh, Patrick Rievel, they're literally stuck between Poland and Russia right now. They're in Kiev in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, first YouTube, now Twitter. The tech company's full court press continues after the break. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So, no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free, then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We talked yesterday about this huge case going in front of the Supreme Court about this decades-old rule at the FCC. And the more tech experts you talk to, the more you hear that Americans are just not aware of how big a deal this could potentially be. Some companies are going to over-sanitize their services and they'll, they'll err on the side of caution. And others, meanwhile, are just going to stick their heads in the sand and they'll abdicate completely. Remember, this is a rule, it's called Section 230, that says you can't be sued if you're just a website letting people talk online. Whoever's typing a message could potentially be sued, but if you're just an open forum, you can't be held responsible any more than the corkboard maker at the local coffee shop. What flyers people post there is their business. And remember, this is enacted right before Google.com is a thing. Perhaps more than any other regulation, this allowed sites like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter to thrive. Well, yesterday, the Supreme Court heard this case. And guess what? There's another case today that could break the internet as well. So let's go to ABC's legal contributor, Kate Shaw, to break this down for us. Kate, I'd have to imagine if the justices had no interest in changing this law... 
they wouldn't have taken the case, right? Like, what was the vibe that you got from them? I think that's right, Brad. When the justices agreed to hear both yesterday's case and today's case, the signal it seemed to send was that the justices were interested in changing the rules of the road for the internet. Why otherwise would they have taken these questions up at all? You seem to have abandoned that and and are saying they don't have to take it off their website. That, Am I correct about that? that that's exactly right. That that, so that was the way be, we framed the question presented. We so that did not advance be, that claim. So you're abandoning that claim. So that can't be aiding and abetting. But honestly, coming out of yesterday's argument, my sense is that they may have bitten off a bit more than they can chew, and that actually they're not very likely to kind of upend life on the internet as we know it. What gave you that impression that <laughs> this institution that like doesn't allow computers in the room, like they're not tech engineers or something? Well, the best line of the argument has to go to Justice Elena Kagan, who basically said kind of self-deprecating, but maybe also kind of throwing a little bit of shade at her colleagues. She said, and I quote, these are not not like like the nine greatest experts on the internet. (laughs) That's her description of the justices of the Supreme Court. And that's fair. They're not. So I think as they waded into these questions of how they might change the potential liability of entities like, you know, Google and YouTube or Twitter in today's case, limiting the kind of immunity that these sorts of providers have historically enjoyed under Section 230 is a complex undertaking that's going to have very significant consequences financially in terms of our collective online lives, you know, in any number of ways, and that maybe they don't have the kind of expertise that is required to decide how to change you know, the nature of the internet, that if somebody's going to change how Section 230 works, that really that should be Congress and not the nine experts on the internet who sit on the Supreme Court. But good luck finding like a tech expert in Congress either. Like I'm looking at the Senate panels. No, 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 thank you. But I mean, so, so what is up for grabs here conceivably? Like, are are there any sort of gray areas or any spots where it's like, oh, this could be reined in or this, this is a, a spot that needs to be looked at specifically? Or is it just like, yeah, blanket immunity? Like that, that's the answer. It's pretty clear that platforms like Google, and it's really YouTube that's at issue in yesterday's case, but of course Google owns YouTube. So Google or Twitter, it's pretty clear that under Section 230, they can't be sued for the actual content that a user posts. But the case sort of asks about whether they might be able to be held liable for the algorithms that they use that actually serve up content Mm. to users. They're affirmatively recommending things. You turn on your computer and the the computers at, at YouTube send you stuff you didn't ask them for they just send you stuff it's no different than if they were sending you emails that's affirmative conduct and if what they serve up ends up being you know violent content that contributes to say an act of terrorism then you know maybe that's a separate question their liability for their own algorithms than their liability for someone else's speech Right, because that's the thing, right? The the rabbit hole is the thing that scares so many people, that you can be watching something on voter fraud in the 1850s, and if you're not careful, eventually you're listening to, like, crackpot conspiracy theories. But so if that was YouTube, that was yesterday, today is a case involving Twitter. What What is that case about? 
This case, like yesterday's, has really tragic facts. It also involves an ISIS attack, this one in a nightclub in Istanbul. Um, and the family members of an individual who was killed in this attack have filed a suit under a statute called the Anti-Terrorism Act, basically claiming they were at least in part responsible for this attack by virtue of the content that their platform served up to individuals that were was extremist content that led in part to the growth of ISIS. I'm trying to get you to explain to us how something that is standard on YouTube for virtually anything that you have an interest in suddenly amounts to aiding and abetting because you're in the ISIS category. But here, it's really about this argument whether the statute, this Anti-Terrorism Act, gives these plaintiffs the ability to proceed against these tech companies. So in some ways, the, the answer to the question in yesterday's case, does Section 230 prevent these suits from going forward at all? You know, that's the most important question, I think, in both of these cases, and really in any case that might be brought against a tech company related in any way to the content on one of those platforms. And perhaps even more important than the ruling in whatever today's case ends up sounding like is like just this idea that there is this kind of bipartisan moment right now where Democrats, Republicans, conservatives and liberals all have their own reasons for taking down big tech a peg. What does that end up looking like for everyone? Uh, Kate Shaw, thank you. Thank you, Brad. In a place like East Palestine, Ohio, distrust can sow even more distrust. When a train ran off the rails in the center of town, many residents went to bed that night thinking, it's a bad fire, nothing more. By the time they awoke, the situation had become much more dire. I just um, uh, put tape on my door so no uh, uh, chemical can come in. You don't know what's going to happen. Like, you're just waiting to hear something to explode. There have been precious few answers on exactly what particulates could still remain in the air, the soil, the water. Residents have been told there are no toxic levels being measured at the moment, but there's still weird smells, weird tastes. That's made residents nervous to trust anyone. Which is a problem when officials do have solid information they need to share. In recent days, some of that distrust has begun to be aimed squarely at perhaps the two most famous faces of rail travel in this country, President Joe Biden, Mr. Infrastructure himself, and his transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg. Yesterday, Buttigieg went on Good Morning America to answer questions. ABC's Ann Flaherty covers government agencies, and I was kind of surprised to see local officials start to call out Secretary Buttigieg by name. Is the frustration kind of just beginning to build about freight trains writ large? Well, certainly frustration is growing, I think, because there's no good answers for these residents. But it really took this sharp turn toward partisan bickering. Stop blaming Donald Trump, a guy who hasn't been president for three years, and use the powers of the federal government to do the things necessary to help people in this community. I mean, you had Republicans showing up on Fox News, accusing Biden of forgetting rural Ohio. I got to say, Secretary Buttigieg has been nowhere to be found on this issue. And then you've got Biden and his transportation secretary, Buttigieg, as you mentioned. Um, You know, they're blaming the railroad industry. But there's another side to the story, which is making sure that we move forward on rail safety in this country. They say that there's so much money that's been poured into politics and this huge corporations that are making billions of dollars. And they haven't taken the kinds of steps that they need to to make 
uh, these freight trains see. So I think what you have are two sides wrangling over the narrative. So there is this, you know, is the story of politicians in Washington who talk a big game, but they have forgotten the little guy. Why have we gotten into a position where we're having hundreds of train derailments every year in this country when we just spent a trillion dollars on infrastructure? This is it about a, a greedy corporation? That's the Democratic line, that, that these corporations have poured so much money into the political system that it can just act with impunity. Norfolk Southern, uh, they did major stock buybacks, major dividends. In fact, the, the total stock buybacks and dividends were greater um, than the investment they made in, in rails. They say that we need to rein it in with more regulation. So that's where the fight stands right now. But, but if you run the Department of Transportation, Anne, I mean, do you have the power to fix any of those things? Because I mean, Buttigieg is in charge. The infrastructure package, which deals with trains, like that became law over a year ago, is, I mean, is there fault to be laid at, at the feet of the Biden administration here? So, you know, the infrastructure package, it's not clear what amount of money or precisely what regulatory step could have prevented this disaster. And it always takes time to spend money when it's included in these bills. You know, but certainly there are issues here beyond East Palestine that... There was a train derailment, for example, in Nebraska. Um, So this obviously happens. It wasn't with, uh, you know, um, hazardous waste. So it wasn't as concerning. But there clearly is an issue with infrastructure and with what these companies are allowed to do in the regulatory space. I got to tell you, ever since I came into this job, I have seen the power that multi-billion dollar railroad companies wield and they fight safety regulations tooth and nail. That's got to change. Buttigieg is going to talk about things like uh, specialized brake systems. Well, they've tried to put to, to enforce rules on specialized brake systems with trains. And then Congress came in in 2015 and passed a law that said it's not necessary. Well, that was a line from the industry. And it's not really clear how much evidence will back that. The rail industry has been pushing to be allowed to have trains have only one human being on board. Imagine what happens if there's an issue on a train that's a mile uh, long or longer, and there's only one person to check on something three quarters of the way back in the train. Now, the last administration froze that rulemaking we have been advancing that in order to push safety. That's where people get frustrated is they see this game that's played in Washington that's not necessarily in their best interest. Nobody really knows what would have prevented this disaster. Right. Well, and that's what seems so weird here, Anne, is like there's personality and there's policy. Because if you're talking about policy, like, are Republicans going to say we need more regulations? We need to go after CEOs more? Because if not, then it would become more of a personality thing, like the personality of Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg who then comes out kind of swinging on the policy thing. And I believe Donald Trump undid some of Barack Obama's rail regulation. So, like, what do you do going forward for either side? Right. I mean, that goes back to this uh, narrative issue that that they're trying to control the storyline. You know, Buttigieg is looking at these large corporations and talking about how much money they make. He's trying to turn their frustration away from him and put it on the corporation. The corporation is saying, look, we've done everything we can. Bad things can happen. We are going to fix it. At the same time, the federal government probably needs to be involved in this in a very, very big way. And we did have the news yesterday that the EPA is going to get involved in this and force the cleanup. And then you have, you know, former President Trump, who's going to show up. Supposedly, he's showing up today to visit the area and, you know, to do some photo ops. And the question is, how much of that is really helpful to any of these residents? 
And the EPA yesterday said it was ordering Norfolk Southern to basically conduct all the cleanup and to pay for all the cleanup there. Norfolk Southern has put out several statements saying, yeah, yeah, we will be paying for all this and that we will sort of honor our commitment to these people in this town. We're also potentially seeing criminal referrals in Pennsylvania right across the state line. So we'll see what comes of that. Uh, Ann Flaherty, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, if your seafood is genetically enhanced, does that qualify as catfishing? One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. Today is Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, which is always the start of busy season for fisheries. But there's one type of fish that's had a rough couple of years. That's a nice channel catfish there, bud. Catfish, those mysterious whiskered bottom feeders, have been more difficult to find on a menu over the last couple of years. Try to slap me on the way. There are lots of factors for that, including labor shortages, higher temperatures, and higher prices for feed. But recently, scientists have been trying to increase supply by taking aim at another problem, the number of catfish every year that die from infection. Apparently, this is a big issue, goes back years. Catfish are the most farmed fish in America, and our farmers are regularly losing out to foreign suppliers. So, what if all those dead fish didn't die? It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! So here's what researchers decided to try. They're injecting alligator DNA into catfish. Yeah, it sounds like a plot for a movie called Catnado. One Alabama journalist said it sounded like a southern gothic horror thriller. But this is a real thing. Humans have been artificially altering the genomes of plants and animals for thousands of years by selective breeding. Apparently, alligators have a gene that helps them heal quickly after thrashing around in gator fights. That gene, researchers say, can make catfish less prone to disease. Today, with advances in genetic engineering techniques, means we can speed this process up by incorporating specific new genes from one species into a completely unrelated species. The study has yet to be peer-reviewed, but if that's true, it could make fish farming a lot less wasteful. And yet, this raises the obvious question... Isn't this a recipe for disaster? Before you ask, no, the catfish don't gain alligator attributes. They're not going to be any toothy, pointed snouts. But there is a real concern about what would happen if these super catfish ever escaped into the wild and outperformed their cousins in the ecosystem. As a result, these genes will be injected in a way that sterilize the fish, rendering them unable to breed, which means it would get expensive year after year if people can even be convinced to eat them something so prehistoric about catfish you really want to inject them with of all things alligator genes that's what we're doing all right just so you know this would not be the first fish genetic tinkering a salmon producer was recently approved to add the genes of a bigger stronger salmon but that fda approval took 26 years to receive good luck with ash wednesday if you're observing i'm brad milky see you tomorrow People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? 
The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.